We're starting the book of Judges. So if you would turn with me into the book of Judges. We finished first and second Timothy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So towards the beginning of your, of your scriptures. If you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, we have some Bibles at the door. And we'd love to be able to give those to you this morning. So, You guys enjoying the rain? All five of you? You know, I'm from southern Oregon, and it does rain quite a bit more in Oregon than it does in Colorado, so I find the rain to be really refreshing, and I sure enjoy the green that comes from it. If you've lived in Colorado for several years, you know that there are some years that we never see the color green. You can go through the whole year with brown, and you're like, why are we called Colorful Colorado? I'm not sure. So the rain is a true uh, blessing. It also reminds me of God's word. God tells us that, that his word is like rain. And the, the rain comes and accomplishes a purpose. And so does God's word. As we get into God's word this morning, we know it's going to accomplish his purposes and not return void. As I was praying about what book to go next, the Lord laid upon my heart the book of Judges. And you might say, well, that's kind of an obscure choice. Why would you pick the book of Judges? And what we're going to find in Judges is that they did what was right in their own eyes. And it completely parallels the culture that we live in today. As everyone is simply saying, I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. I'm not living in the fear of God, the respect of God, but I'm simply making my own choice and doing what's right in my own eyes. And there's many people that think that's a great idea. That's a great way for society to live. And we'll find that it absolutely blows up here in the book of Judges. It destroys people's lives as they simply follow themselves instead of following the Lord. We live really in this I rule generation where we're our own God and living for selfishness instead of living for Jesus Christ. There's an unfolding message of the Bible. I want to try to paint a big picture for just a second. It all leads up to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. God knows our hearts. Our tendency is to say, well, I don't need a savior. Why would God have to send a savior for me? So God first created Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. There would be many that would say today, if I just had a perfect environment, I wouldn't need Jesus. I'm a product of my environment. I grew up in a bad environment. Well, Adam and Eve disproved that because they sinned in a perfect environment, didn't they? So then there'd be a group of people that says, well, give me some rules. If you just give me some rules, I'll follow those rules and I wouldn't need a savior. I wouldn't need someone to die for my sins. So God says, okay. And there we have the law that is given to us. And very quickly we realize we need a savior. But then there would be a third group that says, well, I'll just do what's right in my own eyes. I'm inherently good. Inside of me is goodness. And so if I just simply follow what's right inside of me, some would even think that I'm a God. You know, God is in you in the sense that you are your own deity. And so that is completely blown apart in the book of Judges. This is my prayer for us in the next few months, is that we would be convinced how terrible it is to rule our own lives. That we wouldn't have an I rule perspective, but we would long for our lives to be submitted to Jesus Christ. That it would be a life that's ruled by Christ. So we're going to show just a short video to introduce this series. 
Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we do humble our hearts this morning and we acknowledge that in our lives it's so easy to be our own boss, to try to be our own authority, to live for ourselves. We definitely know that that's what culture is propagating. And as we see this played out over 400 years in Israel's history, we pray that we would be convinced more than ever to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So Father, would you bless the study? Would you really speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Judges, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Old Testament, to try to give an understanding, a brief view of the Old Testament, is it does have largely to do with the promised land that we refer to as Israel. God promised to Abraham that he would give his descendants this section of land. We find a period of time where Israel is in Egypt, and that's where they really grew as a nation, but also that's where they were put under slavery. Moses is the deliverer to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. We have a generation that died in the wilderness. They're not in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. So if you think of Egypt, you know where Israel is. They died in that Sinai desert because they didn't believe that God could bring them into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb led the children of Israel into the promised land. Not in the too distant future. We studied the book of Joshua. You can go to the website and go back and listen to those teachings. Now the book of Judges is the generation right after Joshua. After Joshua passed away, we've got this new generation that's grown up. And they have the job to go in and to do the mop-up operation. The overall victory has already been won, but now each tribe was given a section of Israel. So there's 12 tribes inside of Israel, and those all come from Jacob's sons. Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. So as we're going to read through this chapter this morning, you may find yourself getting lost a little bit with names like Manasseh. And you're like, who is Manasseh? That's one of the tribes of Israel. Who's Judah? That's one of the tribes of Israel. And so now these tribes need to go in and actually take possession of their inheritance. And how this parallels to our own Christian life and our own Christian experience is the victory has been won in Christ. Amen? He's our Joshua that takes us into the promises of God, but then we have to go inherit those promises. We've got to do the mop-up operation. And we'll be challenged this morning to see how they only obeyed partially. It wasn't complete, and many times in our lives, we only obey partially, and we're not driven enough to go in and see the Lord bring about victory in our lives. So the question that they have of the Lord here is who's going to be the first tribe to go in and to fight, to take that final victory? A good thing that they do is they ask the Lord, God, who's your choice? And so the answer that the Lord gives in verse 2, and the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I've delivered the land into his hand. God chooses the tribe of Judah to go first. Why did God choose Judah? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is Judah means praise. Many times throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we find victory comes to the people of God as they worship, as they praise. Have you experienced that in your own life? 
as you choose to get your focus off your circumstance and what you're going through and begin to praise the Lord, oftentimes there's a victory that happens in our hearts and in our lives. And so the first tribe, their name means praise. The victory is going to be won through praise. That's why praise is so important in our church and also in our lives. Also, Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of this tribe, and Jesus is the one who leads us into victory. So Judah, the tribe going first, ultimately points us to Jesus who leads us into victory. In verse 3, so Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with them. So Jacob, when he has 12 sons, he had 12 sons from several wives. In fact, he married sisters. Not a good idea to do. The father-in-law kind of bamboozled him into that arrangement, but there was this competition over kids and handmaidens, and so you have these 12 sons. So Judah and Simeon, they did have the same father and mother. So they're linked by blood, but they're also linked by land, by territory. God gave them similar areas of land. So they go up together. They're going to link together in this battle. Verse 4, then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perzites. One of the arguments against Scripture is how could God order for the judgment of groups of people, the Canaanites, the Perzites. And we know that God had given these countries over 400 years, these people groups, to repent. It wasn't that God's judgment came quickly. In fact, God's judgment is much more long-suffering than we were to give judgment. These nations were absolutely wicked, sacrificing their own children into idolatry, so God ordered their annihilation. God put his judgment upon them. So they go in and they defeat the Perzites and the Canaanites, and we have this specific look at one king in verse 5, and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. He felt totally defeated. It's time to call the tow truck. (laughs) They cut off his big toes. They cut off his thumbs. Why? Because he had done it to 70 other kings, 70 other kings, completely humiliated them where these men don't have their toes, they don't have their thumbs, so all they're left to do is be treated like animals underneath his table. What's interesting to me is we have a pagan king who doesn't know the Lord that understands he's reaping what he sows. And the skeptic of scripture may go, how could God bring judgment upon this man? But the man who is receiving the judgment, it made absolute sense to him. I have went through my life 
cutting off king's thumbs and toes, so now I've reaped what I have sown. Why would they do this? If you don't have your thumbs, you can't use a sword, can you? You can't swing a sword. If you don't have your big toes, you can't be a soldier in battle. You can't stand. You're totally debilitated. And so this has now come back to him. This is a lesson for us. Scripture tells us in Galatians 6, verse 7, to don't be deceived, God's not mocked. You're going to reap what you sow. If you go around cutting people's thumbs and toes off, guess what? You can expect to lose your thumbs and your toes. And we need to evaluate for a second. How do I treat people? Do I go around cutting people's thumbs off with my words? Do I go around stabbing people in the back? Do I always find what's wrong with the, the people of God? Then guess what? We can expect to be treated in that same manner. If we desire to be treated in a merciful manner when we make mistakes and we sin, and we will, we know that, I will, then we need to be merciful to others. So whatever we measure out to others, whatever we give out to others will be given to us as well. I hope you remember Adonai Bezik. Maybe this is your first trip through the book of Judges. Maybe you're tempted to treat somebody in a sinful way. Just remember, it's going to come back to me. We go on into verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjoth Arba, and they killed Shisha and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber, The name of Deber was formerly Kirjoth-Sephir. So these are the victories of Judah and Simeon. We get a glimpse now of Caleb and his relationship with his daughter. I have daughters, three daughters and one son. So anytime in scripture I see a relationship between a father and a daughter, I pay attention. So dads, if you've got daughters, this is for you. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjoth-Sephir and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Achish as wife. Pretty interesting. He says, not just anybody can marry my daughter. It has to be someone who is a man who steps out in faith, who takes action with his faith. If you remember Caleb, he was one of the original spies with Joshua into the promised land. He gave the good report that God's bigger than the giants. We find in the book of Joshua and here in Judges, in his old age, he was still stepping out in faith. First, Caleb had a vision for his daughter. He knew the kind of man that he wanted his daughter to marry. Do we have that as fathers for our daughters? Do we have a vision of who we want them to marry? As a parent, we pretty quickly realize that our kids are going to spend much more time with their spouses than they are with us. 18 years goes pretty quickly. And then, Lord willing, they move out of the house. You know, hopefully it's not the failure to launch deal. But, you know, they're going to spend much more time with, with, their, with their spouse. So dads, have a vision for your daughters. And this is a good characteristic to look for and say, you know what, if you want to marry my daughter, you've got to be a man of faith that takes action upon his faith. So a young man steps up in verse 13, and Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it So he gave him his daughter Achish as a wife. So this is Caleb's nephew that takes the step of faith and is able to marry his daughter. 
Now the daughter has a request that we learn from in verse 14 and 15. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. Then she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? Also with fathers and daughters, you know when your daughter wants something from you. (laughs) So here comes Caleb's daughter. She launches off of her donkey and he can see the look in her eye and he says, what do you wish? What do you want? What's, What's on your heart today? In verse 15, so she said to him, give me a blessing since you've given me the land in the south Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper spring and the lower spring. So she had received the land, but she hadn't received the water. How good's the land without the water? You need the water in order to farm the land. So she's asking for the water from her father. We know Jesus taught us, and he said that our heavenly father knows how to good give good gifts to those we ask. In another gospel, it says this, that our Heavenly Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who asks. One of the symbolisms for the Spirit throughout Scripture is living water, that the Spirit is flowing into our lives. So like Caleb's daughter, we can go to our Heavenly Father and say, would you please give me the living water of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're feeling a little bit dry this Memorial Day weekend. There's a real struggle to get here. And thankfully, you're, you're here. For some reason in worship, felt just a little bit disconnected. Maybe the words just seem to be bouncing off your heart this morning. Cry out to the Lord right where you're sitting in these chairs and say, God, I desire the Holy Spirit. I desire the living water to flow into my life. I desire that blessing from you. Verse 16, now reading down, we're going to cover a pretty large section here, and we're going to highlight. And what we're highlighting is these tribes, they make a decision to not go for complete victory. They settle for partial obedience. And after we read through these verses, we'll go into the first five verses of chapter 2, and then we'll draw application for our own lives. So verse 16, now the children of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of palms, which is Jericho. There's palm trees to this day in Jericho, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. So this is Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite. He comes and dwells among the people. What did God encourage and command for them to do? To destroy the people. So we find some compromise here. I'm just going to dwell among them instead of conquer them. And I think for us, when it comes to sin, we've been given a command to completely eradicate sin from our lives, but a lot of times we want to live among sin. We want to think that we've got sin under control. Verse 17, and Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah, Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory. You've probably heard a lot about Gaza in the news. It's a contested part of Israel right there upon the Mediterranean Sea. Ashkelon with territory, Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. Note that God is giving them victory. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. This is significant. They had victory in the mountains, but defeat in the valleys because there was chariots of iron. They get their focus 
on the chariots instead of the power of God, the almighty God. How does this correlate to our lives? A lot of times we experience victory on the mountains, don't we? God blesses us with mountaintop experiences. I have a lot of victories in my life when I go to a retreat, when I go to a pastor's conference, when I go to a men's conference, a men's retreat. There's worship, there's time in the word. But then in the daily grind of life, I can experience defeat. And it's probably the same for you. And I think there's nothing wrong with the mountaintop experiences, but God wants us to go a little bit deeper. And what's the iron chariot in your life where you kind of go, you know, this is just a little bit too difficult. I've tried before to have victory in this area of my life, but I continue to come back to it. Look at God. Look at his power. Look at what Christ has done for us on the cross. One of the worship songs that we sang this morning is that we've been set free for freedom. It makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, but also deliver us from the power of sin. Because Christ died, buried, and rose again, we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. We can reckon our old man dead, our sinful nature dead. We can do the spiritual math, if you would. Say, I'm not giving in to my anger anymore. I'm not giving in to, to lust. I'm not giving in to covetousness. This bitterness is not going to have a hold on me any longer. Don't settle for, well, the chariots of iron. Put your focus on the almighty God, the victory he brings in our lives. In verse 20, and they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak, which we know to be giants. He kills three giants. Moses had told Caleb that he would have a special inheritance in the land because of his testimony of faith It's estimated that Caleb now is about 85 years old. He's killing giants when he's 85 years old. It had been easy for Caleb to say, I've had a great life. Israel's come into the land collectively. So now I'm going to let one of these young bucks go in and fight, fight this battle. I don't really care if I have my inheritance. As long as we have breath, continue to press into everything that God has for you. Caleb's a great example of going strong to the very end of his life. Verse 21, but the children of Benjamin didn't drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. Did you hear that? This is huge. This affects the whole rest of the Old Testament. These nations being allowed to dwell in the promised land trips Israel up into idolatry to the point where they get kicked out of the land at one point. So they don't drive them out of Jerusalem So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Israel would not take control of Jerusalem till the time of David. We go on into verse 22. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance of the city and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. Luz was a fortified city with a wall with a hidden entrance. They don't know the entrance. So they find this man and say, hey, if you, if you tell us the entrance, 
then we're going to let you live. Do you think that was a good idea or a bad idea based on the command of God? The command of God was everyone needed to be destroyed. Everyone was coming underneath the judgment of God. So here's this one guy with his family that escapes. And you'd think maybe he would join the people of God. That he would turn away from these false gods and join the Israelites. But he doesn't. He moves and he forms a new city and he calls it Luz. See, this is compromise in our life. When I say, you know what? I'm not going to deal with sin completely. I'm going to leave it in this place. I've got it under wraps. I'm going to settle for an 80% victory. Then what happens? That sin moves up north a little bit and builds a whole fortified city that we're going to have to deal with later on. It's another lesson of completely dealing with sin in our lives. Verse 27. You guys still with me? Is anybody just completely lost? Like, I have no idea who these parasites are and What does this have to do with with my life? We'll get there. Bear with me. So verse 27. However, Manasseh, here it is again, maybe highlight, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. And it goes on and on of these different places, Megiddo, and the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Israelites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. This is completely against what God told them to do. It's not that they could not, it's that they would not. They were completely strong enough. God was with them. God's hand was upon them. But instead of wiping them out, they said, we're going to make them our slaves, and life's going to be easier for us. Who doesn't want someone to go chop the firewood? Who doesn't want someone to go and do the laundry? This is a practical decision, but it's not a spiritual decision based upon obedience. Again, this ties into to our lives in areas of struggle. Instead of saying, and completely dealing with it, I've got it under control. I'm going to put it under tribute. I'm going to use it for my benefit. Sin is never going to benefit us. In verse 29, Nor did Ephraim, another tribe of Israel, drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nalal. So the Canaanites dwell among them and were put under tribute. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Achor. Verse 32, so the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And this continues in verse 33 and 34 and 36. We see the same pattern. It says in verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. They put them under tribute. Verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan to dwell in the mountains. So now we see a defeat and Dan is pushed up into the mountains for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites who were determined to dwell in Mount Herez, Ahijon, Shalbim, yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were able to put them under tribute. So we find this throughout this whole chapter of this partial obedience. We've got to look at the next five verses because God comes and speaks about this disobedience. Verse one of chapter two. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant 
with you. There's some times in the Old Testament where Jesus comes as the angel of the Lord. It's Christ stepping onto the pages of the Old Testament. I believe this to be one of those places because the angel is speaking in the first person as God. And so we find very clearly that Christ is speaking to them. And what's the message in verse 1? It says, I led you out of Egypt. I made this commitment to your fathers. I made this covenant to you. And when it comes to victory in our lives, we have to remember what God has done and what he's promised. What he's done is he died on the cross to break the power of sin. He rose again so that we could walk in newness of life. We have, that's a promise that God has given to believers. That, that's the commitment that he has made to us so that we no longer have to be slaves to sin. Before you knew Christ as your savior, you had no choice but to be a slave to sin. You could try your best to overcome sin, but there's no possibility of victory. Christ is the one that brings victory into our lives. In verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. There was to be no compromise with this idolatry, with these false gods. No commitments, no marriages, no contracts. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? The voice of God. God's voice was speaking to these tribes, the nation of Israel, to their leaders, to everyone in these specific tribes saying, don't compromise. Don't put them under tribute. I'm stronger than the chariots of iron. Walk in obedience. Go for a complete victory. But they would not heed the voice of God. And the voice of God's active in our lives as well, isn't it? God's speaking to us. He's saying, you know what? I want to go deeper in your anger. I want to make you a gentle person. I want to set you free from lust. I don't want you to be in bondage to drugs and alcohol. I don't want you to have to live a life of of drunkenness. I don't want you to have to have a, a life of sexual sin that's destroying you. I want you to be able to have a life that's filled with abundance and and goodness. Would you listen to the voice of God? And what is the voice of God in your mind? You know, is this this angry father that's saying, you better do it or else. And if you do it, then you have my favor, you have my love. Or do you hear that gentle, loving voice of a father that says, I've sent my son to die for you. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you unconditionally. But I've got something better for you. I've got a life that's filled with patience. I've got a life that's filled with joy. I've got a life that's filled with intimacy with with me. Listen to that voice of the Father. Obey the voice of God. Verse 3, Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. God confirms their decision. They're still the people of God, but he says, you know what? You want to live in compromise? Go ahead. You're going to now deal with these people groups, and you're going to deal with their gods, and they're going to be thorns in your side. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a trap to you. We're going to see that through the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a 400-year period from the life of Joshua to Samuel. And then even as you go into the Kings and the Chronicles, And the prophets, you're finding that they're struggling with idolatry. Verse 4 and 5, So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel 
that the people lifted up their voice and wept. This is a big, big deal. This is their inheritance. This is their land. This is all they had. And now these nations are going to dwell with them. They're not going to have complete victory. Then they called the name of that place Bacham. And Bacham literally means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So they feel the weight of what has taken place with their partial obedience and they sacrifice to the Lord. Partial obedience always leads to weeping, doesn't it? It always leads to destruction. So I've taught this section in a little bit different way. We've primarily read it and pulled a few things out. Now I'm going to highlight four things and we're going to put them up here on the screen. If you've got a pen and paper, write them down. These are the things that hit, hit my heart And I'm going to go into them a little bit deeper. And the first is this, is invest before it's too late. Invest before it's too late. What we're going to find next week, and please read ahead, is that the generation after Joshua didn't know the Lord nor his works. In one generation, people grew up with not knowing what God had done, that God had brought them into the land. See, the generation right behind us is coming very quickly, and invest in that generation. Take the opportunity with any young person, anybody that's younger than you, and share with them the works of God. Share with them what God has done in your life, especially if you have kids and you have grandkids. Whether they receive it or don't is their choice, but they should know what God has done in your life. Do they know your story? Do they know your testimony? Declare to them what God has done in his word and the accomplishment of salvation. But I think you would realize and I would realize time passes so quickly. I can't believe it's Memorial Day weekend. It's like we're in the, more so than any other year, this year is just flying by for me. And life is passing very quickly. We have a whole generation that's gone and a new generation that's raised up. And that's going to happen to us as well. So invest before it's too late. Take time to pour your life into young people and sharing what God has done in your life. There's always someone younger than you. The next, I like this, is value your fingers and toes, okay? We're going to have a little bit of, of fun this morning is, let me just see your thumbs right there, okay? Just wiggle them around like this. Do you like your thumbs? I like my thumbs. They're very useful to me. I want to keep my thumbs and I want to keep my toes. So I need to make sure that I'm not going around cutting off everybody else's thumbs and everybody else's toes. And maybe this hits you this morning. You're like Adonai Bezik. And your tendency is to always cut people down. May this morning be a morning of repentance, a morning of change direction. I want to sow mercy. I want to sow kindness. I want to sow love. I want to sow sow truth. Value your fingers and toes. This one is something to pray about and think about, is don't settle for partial obedience. Don't settle for partial obedience. As we struggle with sin, to realize that we're crucified with Christ, We have to remind our sinful flesh, you're dead. You've been nailed to the cross. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And don't just settle for 50%. Just don't settle for 80%. How might this look? Maybe someone who struggles with being an alcoholic has gone through great strides to have victory and press into Christ, but yet there's just that secret stash that's hidden in the garage that nobody else knows about. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, if things get really bad and I'm just heartbroken and I don't know what else to do, 
I'm going to go get that out of the garage. You need to go flush that down the toilet today. You need to get rid of it because it's partial obedience. Maybe we've never really gotten to a place that with our anger, that we've been convicted of it to say, I want to be a different person. And there's something weird with anger where we go, well, it's my family heritage. I'm Irish. We're known for our anger. What happens if I stop being angry? Can I still be Irish? Yes, you can still be Irish. Okay? And we know that in some way, in some sick way, anger does get things accomplished. And we're used to getting our way through our anger. And we're not yet fully convinced what the scripture says at how anger damages and destroys people's life. So we've just settled for a partial victory. And a lot of times a partial victory is something where we go, I'm better than I used to be, right? I'm a lot less angry than, than I used to be. Or with bitterness. Bitterness is like, I've got a right to be angry at this person. I've got a right to be able to not forgive them. Do you know what they, they did to me? And we've forgiven to a certain extent, but we haven't truly let it go. And this morning, it shows us the reality, if we don't destroy sin, sin's going to destroy us. Sin's not something to play games with. Sin's not something to put a percentage on. You know, some, some might be saying, well, you know, I do look at some pornography, but... I'm not cheating on my spouse or I'm not running around sleeping with people. And pornography is rampant for men and for women. And God's saying, I want complete victory of your life. I want you to surrender completely in this area of your life. And church, I know that at first, this brings great discouragement because we go, I've tried before. I've tried and I've failed. So why would I go try again? That's why I don't go bowling very often because I stink at bowling, right? It's like, I'm not going to go pay good money to, to bowl and watch my wife beat me at bowling. You know, that's no fun. And that may be your attitude towards some struggle of sin. I, I really have tried before and I've and I failed. And I want you to understand the hope is in Christ. The hope is in looking at what he has done and applying his death and resurrection and claiming the freedom that Christ has paid for on the cross. As we take communion in just a few moments, it's a chance for us to apply that truth. And then lastly is this, it's the refusal to do battle with sin always leads to weeping. As I was meditating upon this section of scripture, it just hit me. There is enough valley of Bacchums that are forced upon us that we have no control over. You can't control if one of your children pass away. You can't control if you get laid off of your job because of, of the recession. You can't control if you get cancer. You get those results back from, from your doctor. But you know what? You can control not going to the valley of Bauckham that's mentioned here in Judges. They weren't forced to go there, were they? They chose to go there by refusing to deal with sin. There's an old saying that experience is the best teacher. But why does it have to be our experience? We can learn from these guys' experience and say, I don't want to go to the valley of Bauckham that comes from partial obedience. So let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion.